Welcome to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast series based on readings from old Knoxville newspapers. I'm Melissa Brenneman, Robbie Griffith and Craig Smith are the readers, and Knox County historian Steve Cotton provides the commentary. This episode comes from the Knoxville Journal and Tribune of May 20, 1902. The song Shut Up in the Mines of Coal Creek was inspired by letters that were found with the bodies of some men who died in one of the worst mine disasters to that date. The song is performed here by Derek Washington. The birds are sweetly singing And the sun is shining bright But in our place of toiling It is as dark as night Shut up in the mines at Cold Creek I know we're bound to die But if we'll trust in Jesus Our souls to heaven will fly Fraterville Mine at Cold Creek, the Tomb of 170 Not a Soul Lives to Tell the Tale of Explosion by Staff Correspondent Cold Creek, Tennessee, May 19th. Absolutely the most horrible catastrophe in the mining history of the South, and with two exceptions, the worst in the United States, occurred at Fraterville Mine in the Cold Creek District, Monday morning at 7.30 o'clock. Exactly 170 men, so Mine Superintendent George M. Camp stated at midnight, lost their lives in the twinkling of an eye as a result of an explosion of gas which occurred at the above-named hour. The terribleness of the catastrophe can be appreciated when it is told that out of the entire village of Fraterville, composed of 42 houses with four or five men in each, only three men are now living. The male element of the village was entirely depopulated, and in every house tonight in Fraterville, there only remains a weeping wife and crying children. There are 226 names on the payroll of the Coal Creek Coal Company of men who were employed at the Fraterville mines. Last Saturday was payday, and as is usually the case, most of the men found other diversions for their full pocket, but as is the exceptional case, they showed up this morning in a larger number than on any other Monday succeeding payday for the last five years. It was a curious whim of fate that men who had shown such industry would have gone to work on this particular Monday to come to death from the terrible explosion which they met. Usually only about One half of the ordinary working force shows up for duty on the Monday following payday, but for some unexplainable reason, only a very few of the men on the roll failed to turn up at the mines for work this morning. It is always thought by the ordinary person that such an explosion as this which occurred at the Fraterville mine causes a tremor of the earth or a loud noise. This explosion which wrecked and racked the interior of the mountain which is mined by the Fraterville people did not by any visible sign of the kind ordinarily expected show itself to outsiders. In fact, a man standing in the mouth of the mine did not know that the explosion occurred until George M. Camp came with his co-laborers from Thistle Mine to find out what was the matter. The work of the rescuers developed the fact tonight that of all the men and 19 mules which were in the mine at the time of the explosion, Not a soul survives except one man, Billy Mason, who is so badly injured that death would be a relief to him. 
No sooner had circumstances pointed to the fact that an explosion had occurred than Superintendent Camp telephoned other mines for help. Every mine in the district sent its men and bodies to the scene. Business was suspended in the little town of Coal Creek, and all who could go went to Freighterville Mine. The men from the other mines of the district began work as rescuers and toiled the live-long day and night. The scene at the mouth of the Freighterville Mine, when the news of the catastrophe had been circulated through the little town, beggared description. Scores of women and children, the wives, sons, and daughters of men who were buried in the mine, crowded around the entrance and begged the rescuers to do impossible tasks in the hope of saving their loved ones within. At the head of the rescuers was Superintendent George M. Camp of the Freighterville Mine, who did heroic service the entire day in directing the efforts of the men who had come from all the mines of the district to lend a hand in saving those who were entombed. It is not known positively what caused the explosion or even that it was an explosion of gas. All that is known is that all are dead and that it will be some hours before all the bodies can be removed from their temporary tomb. The rescuers worked successfully from the Thistle Mine into Freighterville, taking the air with them as they went. This was done by building partitions shutting off the side entries and allowing the air to be forced through the straight channel. The hopes of the rescuers were high until after they had cleared the first obstruction which they met in their progress. Then it was seen that not the force of the explosion but the sulfurous gases had caused the death not only of the men they found at that point but meant certain death to all others within the mine. At midnight there was still a large crowd of men, women, and boys around the mine, fully 600 or 700, and each corpse as it was brought from the earth was carefully inspected by those who had relatives and friends within. Some of the bodies could be recognized while others could not. The late train tonight brought crowds from all stations along the road, Knoxville sending 60, and all these people headed at once for the scene of the explosion. The accident had created widespread interest among the coal operators of East Tennessee. Any number of them are already at Coal Creek. Among the number are the following. L.J.A. Petrie, superintendent of the Black Diamond Company. H.S. Pless, president of the Minersville Coal Company. R.B. Barrett of the Italian Blue Gem Coal Company. And a number of others. Eugene Merrill, treasurer of the Central Labor Union of Knoxville, and Joe Vasey, district organizer for the UMW of A, both arrived tonight to tender the aid of their respective organizations to the bereaved and destitute relatives of the dead. List of Recovered The list of the identified dead brought from the mines up to 11 o'clock is as follows. Robert Smith, married. Ed Evans, single. Louis Stansbury, David Stansbury, these two are brothers and leave wives and children. E. Weaver, single. John Desern, married. William Angel, married. Hatmaker, single. James Whittern, James Whittern Jr., these are father and son and they leave wives and children. John McCamey, married. Frank Runnels, married. John Weber, single. Rufus Weber, married, these are brothers. Chid Green, married. Wyatt, James McDonald, Joseph Smitty. Twenty-three in all were recovered up to this hour, but one or two of the names could not be learned. At half-past eleven o'clock tonight, the rescuing crew reached the head of Entry 15, left, 
and there five more bodies were found. They have not yet been brought to the mouth of the mine because the tram track was completely destroyed by the explosion. The track is being relayed with wooden rails, and as soon as it is finished, these bodies will be brought out. Entry 14 was the first entry reached in which men were working, and there it was that the 22 bodies were found. Coal Creek, May 20th. A telephone message received from Freighterville at 2 a.m. states that a flat car has just left the mouth of the mine on which are loaded 16 additional bodies just recovered from entry 15 left and right en route to Coal Creek to be placed in the temporary morgue. These bodies have not yet been identified. The Freighterville Coal Mine is the oldest mine in the Coal Creek section, having been first opened in 1870. It is located in Anderson County and is owned by the Coal Creek Company, of which Major E.C. Camp of this city is president. It covers quite a large area and strikes in the heart of the rich coal seam, some four or five feet in thickness. It has always been regarded as perfectly safe, and hundreds of men have been employed in the mine. It is located some two miles from Coal Creek, while just across an intervening mine is the Thistle Mine. George Camp, son of Major E.C. Camp, is superintendent of both mines. There is a passageway between the two mines, and it was through this passage that hopes were for a time entertained that some of the entombed miners might be enabled to effect their escape. Mine Superintendent Camp makes a statement. Following will be found the official statement of George M. Camp, superintendent of the Freighterville and Thistle Mine property of the Coal Creek Coal Company, to the Journal and Tribune staff correspondent. The explanation for this explosion is absolutely unfathomable. Nobody can give an opinion as to its origin with any degree of authenticity. The general condition of the mine was good, which made the horrible explosion all the more awful in its intensity. The explosion occurred at 7.20 a.m. I was notified by telephone and came directly to the mine. I got there about ten minutes later, and even then no one knew that the explosion had occurred. Men at the neighboring Thistle Mine happened to glance towards the air shaft of the Freighterville Mine at the time the explosion occurred and noticed a vast column of smoke which shot up fully 100 feet out of the furnace. This, however, did not tell what had happened because each man who saw it thought that the tender of the air shaft furnace had just thrown on a lot of loose coal dust. Several others noticed smoke on the interior of the mine just a few minutes later and one of them came out of the mine telling me of the fact, saying that the smoke had reached the main entrance. I immediately took three men with me and went into where the smoke was, but it was so thick we could not go very far in safety. There we heard groans, and I stooped very low, and accompanied by my three men, went about ninety feet through this bank of sulfurous smoke and found a man lying there on his back unconscious. It was Billy Morgan. We picked him up and brought him outside. I immediately summoned the experienced mine men of Coal Creek by means of phone and messengers to come at once, which they did. Every mine in the valley sent every man that it had, and for the next three quarters of an hour, they, accompanied by weeping, wailing women and children, poured into the cove in which the Freighterville mine is located. I arranged rescuing crews immediately and proceeded to advance as we could. This advance was promoted by carrying our ventilation with us. That is, we carried a system of brattising. This means stopping up all side entrances to the main channel in order that fresh air may be poured straight forward without any interference. 
We proceeded on up the main entry about 2,200 feet, and there we found the entry blocked with slate and empty cars all jammed together. The roof had caved in on a train of coal cars. One man, Robert Smith, was lying dead there in the center of the entrance. This was on this side of the cave. The posture he was found in showed that he had died from suffocation. He was cut off from that way of entering further. We returned to the mouth of Fraterville Mine and advanced to the orifice of the Thistle Mine, which is connected with Fraterville. There we went to work, with crews erecting bradices as we went, in order to force air into Fraterville Mine from the Thistle Mine. The two main entries of these two mines connect. At that time, fully 2,000 people had gathered around the entry to the mine. Women were frantically trying to force their way into the mine, and strong men were groaning in agony in fear that perhaps brother or father, husband or child, was lying dead within. About four o'clock this afternoon, the men succeeded in advancing into the galleries where the men were working in the Fraterville, fully 4,000 feet from the mouth of Thistle. There were 22 bodies found lying in every conceivable posture. A young boy of the number had his head blown completely off, both arms torn off and otherwise horribly mutilated. That the explosion had not killed most of the men, however, was apparent, for some of them in their desperate agony to escape had furrowed their faces into the earth. Others had torn off their shirts and wrapped them around their nostrils in their efforts to keep out the nauseous vapors which finally killed them. These men were brought to the mouth of the mine as fast as possible, and successful efforts in all but one instance were made to identify them. Out of the entire number, whose names are given above, only one showed any signs of life when found. That was Billy Morgan. Almost every bone in his body was broken. His thigh bones had punctured the flesh and were showing, but with wonderful tenacity he was still living, though unconscious. Prominent among those who led the work of rescue were Thomas J. Davis of Minersville, Lou Card of Beechgrove Mine of the Black Diamond Company, Captain Nelson from the Slate Stone of the Knoxville Iron Company, Dan Fulton of Beechgrove, Abraham Hale of Thistle, Charles Pop, Superintendent of the Royal Mines, Leland Stone, Bank Boss of Royal Mines, Rufus Bennett of Black Company's Mine, Harry Wynn of La Follette, David Jones of Tennessee Mine. These men have to assist them about 60 experienced mine workers divided into crews. They have been working steadily since the terrible explosion at a little past 7 o'clock this morning and will not quit, though there are eight reserve crews waiting to relieve them. Every effort in the power of man is being made to reach through the mines in the hope that some of those supposed to be dead may yet be living. Excellent judgment has been shown in every move taken. George M. Camp. The J-O-U-A-M of Tennessee expect to send $1,000 to Cold Creek Town for the relief of the widows and orphans of the 210 men who suffered death in the Cold Creek mine disaster yesterday. R.D. Horton of this city received a telegram from E.C. Prescott, state vice president, last night, stating that two members of the J-O-U-A-M are among the victims of the awful disaster and that help was needed at once for the relief of their families and others. 
Mr. Horton at once wired all of the other state officers, and it is confidently expected that at least $1,000 will be raised during today, and this amount will be sent to Cold Creek tonight or this afternoon. Interview with Inspector Shiflett, special to the Journal and Tribune, Nashville, May 19th. Mine Inspector Shiflett left for Cold Creek this afternoon. He said before leaving, It's awful. I know personally nearly every man who worked in that mine. I'm surprised that the accident occurred. The company had recently installed a big 16-foot fan for keeping the mine ventilated, and this was considered amply sufficient for the purpose. There will be a difficult time experienced in recovering the bodies. The mine extends back about a mile under a hill, perhaps 700 feet high. All the gas must be gotten out of the mine before it will be safe for anyone to enter with a light uncovered. My last inspection of the mine was made in January. You will see from my report of 1900 that I pointed out a number of defects, though these had practically been remedied. Better ventilation was urged in that report, and the company replied by putting in the big fan. From the report of Inspector Shiflett in 1900, the following statements are taken. I have just completed official inspection of Freighterville Mine and called your attention to ventilation and condition of this mine. Ventilation is far below requirements. The volume of air entering mine was only 8,000 cubic feet per minute, just half of what it should be. This current is laden with black damp from the Knoxville Iron Company's mine. I must insist that you get ventilation up to legal requirements as rapidly as possible. You must reduce the force in this mine to 80 men until you can provide the legal amount of air for these men. Rooms are being driven up here 275 to 300 feet with only one breakthrough between them. Breakthroughs must be made at every 8 feet in rooms. Mr. Shiflett states that many of the defects pointed out have been remedied. $5,425 already raised for relief. The reports of the extent of the Cold Creek calamity indicate that there will be at least 1,000 people who are dependent on the dead miners for subsistence. Consequently, it will be seen that a large amount will be required to give even temporary relief to the widows and orphans. Knoxville always has responded nobly to calls of this kind and will doubtless do so at this time. The following telegram was received last night by E.J. Sanford, president of the Cold Creek Mining and Manufacturing Company, which company is the owner of the land of which the Black Diamond, Royal, Minersville, Knoxville Iron Company, and Cold Creek Coal Companies are the operators and lessees, the latter being the company at whose mine the disaster occurred. New York, New York, May 19th. Colonel E.J. Sanford, Knoxville, Tennessee. The painful news of a frightful accident at Coal Creek has reached us. Mr. Schley and myself, with other New York directors, if Colonel McGee and yourself approve, would favor a subscription of $5,000 to any fund raised for relief of widows and orphans of the unfortunate. Signed, E.R. Chapman. The local directors, who are Colonel C.M. McGee, E.J. Sanford, and Edward T. Sanford, heartily approved of Mr. Chapman's suggestion and have appointed a committee composed of C.M. McClung, Dr. R.M. Ray, and T.I. Stevenson to take charge of the disposition of the $5,000. The New York directors of the company are E.R. Chapman, Colonel Oliver H. Payne, Colonel Samuel Thomas, and Samuel Price. The Journal and Tribune 
will receive all contributions that may be forwarded to its office until a responsible committee is appointed at Coal Creek to take charge of the same. Knoxville called on for many coffins. Orders were received in Knoxville yesterday by two undertaking firms for 200 or more coffins for use at the scene of the Coal Creek disaster. In addition to this, the services of four undertakers were asked for at the scene of the disaster, and this number of men from the firms of Hall and Donahoe and E.B. Mann and Company were hurried there on the first train after the orders were received. Those who went there were Mr. John Donahoe for the Hall and Donahoe Company, and Mr. Arthur Mann, S.L. Sollings, and Frank Hodge for E.B. Mann and Company. Mr. Mann and Company shipped 61 coffins on the train which left Knoxville at 7 o'clock last night. The train is a regular passenger, and the freight car which carried the coffins was attached to the engine of the train. The remaining 39 coffins will probably be shipped on the early morning train today. A force was at work at E.B. Mann and Company's establishment until late last night getting ready for the second shipment. Hall and Donahoe did not make a shipment yesterday. They expect to ship their order on an early train this morning. This firm also worked a force into the small hours of this morning, getting their shipment in readiness. This is the largest order for coffins ever received in Knoxville. Knoxville firms have furnished coffins for a number of disasters of smaller caliber, but nothing like an order for 200 coffins has ever been made in this city before yesterday. Oh, I see my loved ones My wife is in distress She does not know that her husband Is going home to rest Shut up in the mines at Cold Creek I know we're bound to die but if we'll trust in Jesus our souls to heaven will fly I'm here with Steve Cottom Knox County historian to talk about the Freighterville mine explosion and what it meant in history Steve well, thank you um, Freighterville was one of the worst mining disasters in the history of the United States captured popular attention in East Tennessee and across the country for a number of days because so many men died and the circumstances were so tragic. It basically wiped out the male population of the area around the mine. 184 men and boys died in the mine explosion and in the aftermath of the explosion. It was a, a notable tragedy, and I guess the thing that really captured popular attention were, were the messages left by the men who were able to survive for as long as eight hours after the explosion. And they probably knew that the chances were slim to none that they would get out of the mine, so they knew they were going to ultimately suffocate. This was a pretty horrible idea. Mm -hmm. the, the whole history of, of deep mines in Tennessee, had it, it was a new... Uh, part of the economy in this, in this part of the country, and really even for the country as a whole. Uh, in the pre-Civil War years, a little bit of coal was mined, a, s a relatively small amount of coal, from uh, seams of coal that were near the surface. But with the advent of the railroad and the need for a lot of coal, 
became uh, desirable to exploit the coal that existed in the Cumberland Mountains and and commercial interests mainly from the outside started to to develop the deep mines mm -hmm. and the early miners who really taught the later generations how to build and operate a mine because it was a really kind of primitive technology uh, a lot of those people were from Wales. A lot of the early miners came from Wales in the, the late 1800s. There was a lot of labor unrest in these mines, and Coal Creek was, was what we today call Lake City, and uh, there was a lot of labor unrest in, in the early years of mining because for a time the mine operators tr uh, hired convict labor and put the miners out of the mines, and there was uh, the, the famous coal mine war, the Miners' Rebellion in 1891 which is just 11 years before the Freighterville disaster. So there was this, this new technology, the deep mines, was dirty and dangerous work, and then there was the labor unrest, which went on all the way through the period. We have a good book in the collection called Circling Windrock Mountain that yes. covers the Coal Creek War and mm -hmm. the Freighterville mine explosion and the mm -hmm. attempts by the labor unions to come in mm -hmm. around that time had not been successful yet. Mm -hmm. No, it was, uh, there was a real concerted effort to keep unions out. It, it was very, very hard to organize a union in the mines in this area in the early days mm -hmm. with the opposition of the the owners and the state government. I mean, when there were there was unrest, the governor would frequently call out the militia to calm things down if things got a little heated. So, really, the the whole power of the state was arrayed against the the miners and their interest. Mm -hmm. It was a hard thing to do. It was a hard life too. The Freighterville mine went three miles back into the earth. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a, it was it was a huge mine, and those seams, the little passages that they worked in, were really narrow, and they were things would collapse. It was, a, it was a hard way to make a living and dangerous. There is a monument at Briceville at the, the church that was started by the Welsh miners there to the, the dead of, of uh, the Freighterville mine disaster. Mm -hmm. And there's been a commemoration of, I don't know if it's held every year, but there have been commemorations held over the over succeeding years. There was a really big one on the 100th anniversary in 2002. And people, descendants from all over the country came to, to remember the, the dead miners. And not all of the people were buried in, in, in one place. And there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a list of where the dead miners were from, but the majority of them were buried in that cemetery there. So there's, and there's a large monument. And then there are you know, individual monuments to other family members there, too. There's actually a memorial program. We have a copy of it here in the, the uh, vertical file of the, when all of the dead were recovered and they had... Uh, had uh, an actual memorial service for all of the dead, and it listed everybody who was who had died and, and where they were from and their age, and it kind of gave a little accounting of the uh, memorial, and I, I don't remember now how many days later it was before they actually did that. One thing that struck me about the coverage in the Knoxville paper about this was that it did quote extensively from management. Mm -hmm. the oh, yes. Well, the mine operators. The mine operators were here in, you know, the owners were here I think in Knoxville, at least some of the people were Knoxville people, and it was easier to talk to them than it was the miners, although the journal correspondent did have, um, he, he had someone out at the mine interviewing people, and he was getting information about the families and the miner, miners too, but uh, of course it's always, there are always two sides to cover, and one of them was the economic disaster, and the mine was pretty much, you know, that was 
sealed and, and lost. But then there's the other side of it, and that's the, all the people who suffered and died. There was another disaster, the two biggest ones, that one and the Bryceville disaster at Cross Mountain. There were two really large-scale disasters that hit the, the mines, and that's pretty much given the, the technology of the time. It's not surprising that there were those kinds of disasters because the explosion with the, the methane gas and coal dust, once that happened, then you have all the off-products of the, of the explosion, the carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide and nitrogen. And so there were two parts of it, the ex initial explosion and then what came after. Right, right. Made it very difficult. The book also talks about the fact that mining had come to East Tennessee before Virginia, West Virginia, and Kentucky because mm -hmm. the railroad had come through earlier, and that 30 years of coal dust had already <laughs> seeped into the cracks in Federal Mine. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the, the railroad was the engine that really transformed Appalachia because it, it was the first time you could really exploit the raw materials of the region. but. To run the railroad and its steam engine, you had to have coal. So it was creating the market for the coal that it also hauled to other places for other reasons. Uh, the coal that was mined before the Civil War was, was uh, used more for um, blacksmith shops and things like that, and, and those had used, a lot of those industrial uses had been uh, charcoal. So the, the forest had been cut and turned into charcoal to fuel mm. the earlier industry, and coal came along and at least now, we weren't cutting down all the trees to make charcoal, we were mining the coal from millennia ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> the way we exploit the raw material has, has really evolved with the technology, and so we had strip mining, which was, which was very destructive of the environment, and now we have mountaintop removal, which is amazing in its destructive capacity to just change the landscape. And, ways nobody would have even imagined 50 years ago. And burying waterways. And burying waterways, yeah. Mm -hmm. I've read that there's an area that's as big as the Great Smoky Mountains National Park that's been strip mined and well you could probably see that from outer space if you were up on a, one of the space capsules. Mm -hmm. You could certainly see Ducktown which was um, the copper mining area down in southeastern Tennessee where the, um, off the gases that were produced and the byproducts of the smelting process killed all the vegetation. Right. And over a huge area, and it's visible from outer space even today. <laughs> yes, even as much as it has recovered, yeah. uh, it is still there. Well, I left out a sidebar story that listed the dead and also listed relief donors, but I wanted to point out that there was a 10-year-old boy mentioned uh, among the dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, that didn't seem to be unusual. There were yeah. 10, 11, 13-year-olds who died in the mines. Yeah, yeah. There were there were very young men who worked in the or boys who worked in the mines. Um, uh, one of the boy, one of the people mentioned in the recovery was a, a teenager, and they talked about recovering his body. They couldn't find his body, and his family was very upset. And then they they found part of it and were able to identify his body. He'd been blown up in the explosion. Mm -hmm. That was very, very sad. The book Circling Windrock Mountain also discusses the young boys that ran four miles barefoot mm. that took the story of the disaster to neighboring towns. Mm -hmm. Various people tried to get word out about the mine disaster, including the boys who ran to, to nearby towns to try to get help from other mines nearby, mine operators who actually ran the mine, 
not the owner, but the operator, mm -hmm. to come in and try to help. To, because it was very, very dangerous to go into the mine. And the man who came in and actually led the rescue attempt said that, you know, he, he knew the various kinds of gases that there were. And he knew that if you didn't react very carefully that you could lead a bunch of people down and get them killed. And so he went first. And uh, they, they call these different kinds of damps, but it was basically carbon dioxide or nitrogen or carbon monoxide. And if you panicked and turned quickly and fell, you would die. The gas was one of those, was very heavy and near the ground. So it was very courageous just to go in the mine and try to recover the bodies in a group of men did manage to do that after a period of time went by. It captured the headlines and certainly in the, in the region and across the country. And the story was so dramatic because of the men who did live so long, like J.D. Powell, who happened to have a little book and wrote the personal letters to various family members uh, mm -hmm. while he was suffocating, basically, and about to in the mine. Well, on the blog with this recording, mm -hmm. I'm going to provide a link to the uh, major mining disasters of the 20th century mm -hmm. where the Coal Creek disaster can be compared with some others. Mm -hmm. And I'll also link to this book, Circling mm -hmm. Windrock Mountain, which is excellent coverage of this with photographs that mm -hmm. are yeah. Very yeah, there were, because there was so much interest in the uh, in the circumstances of the mine disaster, there were lantern slides made of the recovery. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have these photographs today. They, and lantern slides were typically shown. It probably was done for fundraising purposes for the surviving family because they showed the people at the mine, and they have that famous photograph of the of the coffins that were waiting for the bodies, mm -hmm. and. Um, I'm pretty sure it was probably connected with fundraising for the surviving family members. And there are the excerpts from Jake Vowell's letters to his wife. You're right. And that there, the song is based on. Yeah, there's also there were there were a number of of songs and ballads that came out of out of this time. Uh, we do have one in our collection, of just a little handbill, a little printed copy of it that uh, was written by a man who lost, I think, lost family members in that in both mine disasters. And it was sold as a, probably to raise money for the survivors as a little, you know, penny handbill on the street. Uh, and we have a very dog-eared copy in the library collection of one of those. And, and I don't know what, I bet it was, I bet it was sung, but I don't know, there's no indication about any kind of, you know, melody or tune. It's just a, a little poem. Hmm. Might want to add that to the blog. Okay, get sure. It, I could get it for you if you like to do that. That would be great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Mm -hmm. I hope we'll have happier things to discuss <laughs> in the future, but thank you for choosing well, this article. Yeah, it's an important piece of East Tennessee history. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast series of the Knox County Public Library. I'm Melissa Brenneman, and here's more music from Derek Washington. Join us again for another look into Knoxville's past. The sky is falling my darling and death is right at hand i'm going home to heaven to live in a better land shut up in the mines at cold creek i know we're bound to die but if we'll trust in Jesus, our souls to heaven will fly.